Theatre Podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 107, Thomas Decker, London's Playwright. Last time, I took you into the world of Thomas Decker and began his life story from his birth in London, his shadowy entry into the world of the London playhouses, his account of the plague-ridden capital, and through his prose work, The Gull's Handbook and in particular his descriptions of the playhouse through his satiric advice to the young gallant on how to behave. I'm not usually prescriptive about how you listen to the podcast, but in this case, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I strongly advise that you do go back and do that now. Having, I hope, shown something of his satiric style, let's move on and investigate some of his plays and complete the story of his life. And it's a story that is entwined with that of Henslow and his diary, from which we get much of the information about Decker's incredible work rate. Decker's earliest known work for the stage, but almost certainly not his first, is a two-part play called Old Fortunus. It's an allegorical fantasy based on a German legend, where Fortunus and his son acquire a cup of gold and a wishing cap with the help of the goddess Fortune. But by failing to thank and respect her properly for those gifts, they seal their own fate, and the play ends tragically. Even in that brief description, you can see that there is some resemblance to Marlowe's Dr Faustus. The problem with this play is that its original form, indeed its original performance date, is lost thanks to much rewriting over the subsequent years. Henslow had it played at the Rose in 1596 as a revival, and it was shown in court in 1599, but by then as a single and a probably a much-changed play. What stands out now is some of Decker's verse, which shows that he clearly had an ear for a melodic form. Tomorrow, shadow, will I give the gold. Tomorrow, pride goes bare and lust a cold. Tomorrow will the rich man feed the poor, and vice tomorrow virtue will adore. Tomorrow beggars will be crowned kings, this no time, morrow's time, no sweetness sings. Decker appears to have worked much of his time as a script polisher for the Admiral's men and other troops, often, but not exclusively, working with younger playwrights. Although many of these collaborations are lost, his range was wide, covering historical plays, classical adaptations like a lost version of Troilus and Cressida, and religious plays like The Lost Jephtha, probably written with Anthony Munday. Decker was a staunch Protestant. I'll discuss some of those collaborations, but they are just the most interesting examples. There were many others, and hardly a contemporary playwright that he didn't work with. The Honest Whore, registered in 1604, is a good example of what is good and bad in Decker's work. It's a comedy in two parts, with the first part being co-written by Thomas Middleton. In part one, the story concerns the courtesan Bellafront, who is persuaded by the feckless Count Hippolyto to change her ways and become an honest woman. In the process, she falls in love with him, but he rejects her and marries Infelice, the daughter of the Duke of Milan. Bellafront marries Matteo, the man who was responsible for her original downfall. In the second part, written the following year, Bellafront is married to Matteo and devoted to him, but he is unworthy of her devotion and still a slave to his many vices. 
To fund his addictions, she is tempted to return to her old trade. When she and Hippolyto meet again, he falls in love with her, but she spurns his advances and after many trials and tribulations that she continues to resist, she is rewarded by her father and rescued from her situation. The play is criticised for its weak structure, but some scenes come alive, particularly those set in the Bedlam Hospital and the Bridewell Prison, and there are some strong characters and good poetry. The play has a strong comic subplot, which gives effective release from what would otherwise be a rather dour play. A comedy that has elements of a history play and tragedy as well. This is perhaps Decker's greatest fault. He tried to cram so much, to mix too many genres into one play. But it was, in its time, very well received. Decker plays a part in one of the many conundrums of Henslow's diary. In autumn 1598, he co-wrote with Michael Drayton two plays called The Civil Wars in France. In December, Henslow notes paying Decker and Drayton £5 for the third part of The Civil Wars in France. Then, on the 20th of January 1599, £3 in advance for his play called A First Introduction to the Civil Wars of France. There's no record that this play was ever completed, or indeed as to what it might have been. Why was an introduction needed to a play already in three parts? Perhaps it was a summary of each play, if parts two and three were to be performed as standalone productions. We see this with Tamburlaine part two being performed as a standalone piece, so that's possible. But three pounds seems a hefty payment just for that. Perhaps the non-completion of this work was because just ten days later, Henslow paid out £3.10 shillings to release Decker from The Arrest of My Lord Chamberlain's Men. Now, the details are vague, but it looks like the Lord Chamberlain's Men, the main rival to Henslow's resident troop, had some previous arrangement with Decker and he was in a financial debt to them. They were about to, or maybe had already, taken to legal recourse to resolve this and Henslow was willing to pay the necessary fines to get his man back on side. As there's no record of Decker's activity for some months after that, it's also possible that he still ended up in the debtor's prison. He was back on the scene by early April, when Henslow pays him and Henry Chettle £3 for a new version of Troilus and Cressida. But then Chettle gets into some sort of trouble himself, and on the 2nd of May, Henslow paid 20 shillings to get him released from arrest. But Henslow still retains his confidence in Decker. On the same day, he paid him 5 shillings in advance for a play called Orestes Furens. That work is never heard of again, but work on Troilus and Cressida continued. On the 26th of May, Henslow paid a further 30 shillings for that work, but the dramatist's tack had changed and he notes the amendment of the title to The Tragedy of Agamemnon. Four days later, a final payment of £3.05 shillings was made. The play has taken just two months to write, including any interruption due to incarceration of Chettle. Henslow registered the play with the stationer's office, which cost him a fee of seven shillings, payable to the Master of the Revels, four days later, and it was first performed shortly after. In the early 1590s, Decker had a hand in what still remains one of the most mysterious plays of the period, 
yet with just enough tantalising detail to make us wish that there was more. The play of Sir Thomas More exists in a single incomplete manuscript, and one of the incomplete elements is a clear authorial statement. By inference and textual analysis, scholars have pieced together a history of the play, a history that has become of particular interest since three pages of the handwritten revisions are now accepted to be by Shakespeare. The play itself is not a straight biography of the life, but a series of selected and linked scenes. The play avoids mention of More's literary career and the dispute between Henry VIII and the Pope. But the play does include events around the May Day uprising of 1517, when gangs of apprentices attacked foreign workers and shop owners in the city. A speech to them by More is shown to quell their xenophobia and their anger. The second part shows his commitment to family and portrays him as a kindly man, both generous to his friends, witty and loved by all in his circle. And then the third part shows his loyal service to the Privy Council, turning to disagreement with the King, leading to his execution. The specific debates about the break from Rome are avoided, with the play concentrating on the reconciliation of questions of loyalty to the King versus freedom of the individual and of how the rule of law should be applied to the behaviour of the mob. No one is above the law or the king, and, the play says, it is only because of his disobedience to the king that More was executed. The play was originally written by Anthony Munday, who you'll remember was a committed Protestant, so at first glance Thomas More, a Catholic martyr, is an odd subject for him. But by more or less ignoring the religious questions and showing more as an intelligent humanist whose concern is primarily for the rights of the individual, Monday created a version of the man that, in all these respects at least, held views that were quite close to Monday's own. The manuscript, with its updates, is in at least six different hands and also includes notes by Sir Edmund Tilney, the Master of the Revels, as he asks for changes to make the script acceptable. It's a very difficult document to interpolate, but the consensus is that it started out as a fair copy manuscript of the play, written in the early 1590s by Monday and probably with Henry Chettle. That script would have been sent to Tilney for approval, as happened with every play proposed for public presentation. But the Master of the Revels was concerned. This was a period when riots related to the perceived number of foreigners in the city were regularly occurring. Tilney wanted to avoid any further provocations and demanded changes, writing, Leave out the insurrection wholly and the cause thereof, and begin with Sir Thomas More at the Mayor's Sessions, with a report afterwards of his good service done being Sheriff of London upon the mutiny upon the Lombards. Only by a short report, and not otherwise at your own perils. It sounds almost like Tilney fancied himself as a playwright, but it is interesting to think that any play submitted to him could have been subject to this type of order, and that playwrights, from the worst hack to the greatest artist, would have had to find amendments that complied to his wishes. But in this case, the amendments on the manuscript do not directly address the issues he raised then, so the assumption is that Monday and Chettle thought that the ask was too much and abandoned the project as a lost cause. Things changed in 1603 with the death of the old queen. The script was dusted off, 
and several playwrights worked on the text to make it acceptable. The hands of Thomas Hayward, Decker and, as already mentioned, Shakespeare are detected. But there are others too, which may be why the play has ended up in an episodic style, a play written by committee in effect. There are many extant examples of Decker's handwriting, so at least 30 lines of dialogue can confidently be ascribed to him. And of course, I can't pass this by without a word on Shakespeare's contribution to the play. It's in the first part, where Sir Thomas is sent to calm the rioters. A task he completes successfully, and that leads to his elevation in the government. Shakespeare, through more, uses humane pleas for tolerance and forgiveness to placate the rioters. Imagine that you see the wretched strangers, their babies at their backs, with their poor luggage plodding to the ports and coasts for transportation, and that you sit as kings in your desires, authority quite silenced by your brawl, and you in rough of your opinions clothed. What have you got? I'll tell you. You have taught how insolence and strong hand should prevail, how order should be quelled. And by this pattern, not one of you should live an aged man, for other ruffians, as their fancies wrought, with self-same hand, self-reasons and self-right, would shark on you, and men like ravenous fishes would feed on one another. There is a piece of timeless Shakespeare commentary. The timing of the amendments to the play of Sir Thomas More probably puts it just at the point when London was closed down for the plague, which might explain why there was no contemporary record of a performance. Speculatively, it is suggested that at the time, The Rose was the only theatre suitable for staging the play, which demands a large upper balcony level, and Lord Strang's men the only troupe capable of performing such a large piece. But the fact remains that the first recorded performance was in 1922. We're on firmer ground with Decker's comedy The Shoemaker's Holiday, written in 1599, his next work after The Tragedy of Agamemnon, and his best surviving work. It was at the beginning of that year that Henslow recorded lending Decker £3 to buy a book called The Gentle Craft by Thomas Deloney, published a year earlier. This was to be the source material for Decker's play, which he called A Merry Conceit. Three of the stories about cobblers in Deloney's book were used by Decker, the centrepiece being the tale of a real-life figure, Simon Eyre, who in the early 1400s made the journey from small-time Draper to become Lord Mayor of London in 1445. It was Deloney who changed his profession to shoemaker, and Decker retained that amendment. The plot is intentionally light and frothy, delighting in the characters and their sometimes pithy language. It is the romantic comedy rather than the history that interests Decker, but the setting is important. It is very much a love letter to London, where he evokes a bustling Elizabethan capital city full of busy tradesmen and apprentices. And this is perhaps the main point of interest for us today. The comedy doesn't leap off the page, which is not to discredit Decker, it's an accusation that can be levelled at many Elizabethan comedies, including Shakespeare's. But there would, I think, be more merit in performance. When Eyre inquires after the whereabouts of his wife's maid, Cecily Bumtrinket, who, he says, has a pretty fault, she farts in her sleep, there is plenty of scope for stage business to exaggerate the crudeness of the humour and point up the innuendo. 
Then there is the no doubt very carefully named Firk, the shoemaker, whose codpiece point is ready to fly in pieces every time I think upon Mistress Rose. And that pithy language I mentioned includes colourful insults, like Eyre calling his wife an Islington white pot and a pudding full of maggots, of coded references to syphilis as the disease of the French, and the use of catchphrases by various characters, which, in context, often have a double meaning. The thrust of the plot was, for the time, a modern success story. The poor man made good through trade and commerce. This was the breaking of the old medieval social order and the concept of social mobility becoming a reality. This was a London story. There is no doubt that it would have appealed to the standing audience, hopeful perhaps that one day they would be able to afford their place in the seated galleries or even on those on-stage stools. Simon Eyre, the main character, is self-reliant and successful. In a world where the king can approve the marriage of someone he believes to be a Flemish shoemaker to the daughter of the Lord Mayor of the city. Fanciful, perhaps, to suggest that there is a yearning for democratic society in this, but the play does feature a labour strike by the apprentices of the city, the first ever shown in an English play, so this play is not a completely thoughtless frivolity. As a group, the apprentices were essential to the running of the financial trading heart of the city but also a threat to good order whenever they gathered in numbers during their time off, drinking and sporting in the streets. It's reasonable to assume that apprentices made up a good part of the theatre audience, so portraying them on stage with the power to amend the social order through their numbers could have been seen as a rather risky stance to take. The play is also unashamedly self-referencing of London theatre life. In a common trait of the time, Decker uses quotations from other recent plays in his text, presumably to act as little Easter eggs for the knowledgeable amongst the London theatre audience to recognise. Some are micro-quotes and may not even be intentional, but there are clear quotes within the script from The Spanish Tragedy and reference to characters from Kidd and Marlowe, not to mention a reference that could be to A Midsummer Night's Dream. A mark of its popularity was that the play was printed the following year, and it is from there that we learn that the play was performed for the Queen and the Court the preceding New Year's Day. Decker wrote a prologue for the occasion. O grant bright mirror of true chastity, from those life-bearing stars your sun-like eyes, one gracious smile, for your celestial breath must send us life or sentence us to death just the sort of flattery and obsequiousness that the ageing Elizabeth would have appreciated. At this time, Decker was working at a furious pace. Just a week after the payments for the shoemaker's holiday, Henslow paid him, presumably jointly with Chettle again, £1 for work on the play called The Stepmother's Tragedy. By the end of October, Henslow had paid a total of £5 for the completed work. At the same time, Decker received a payment for £3 for a play called Better Late Than Never, and then a few days later, £4 for a play written in collaboration with Ben Johnson, Page of Plymouth. Of course, the payment for the scripts was not Henslow's only expense. In September, he notes that the play was finished, and he spent £10 to buy women's gowns for it. The play was a domestic tragedy, portraying recent events. 
At the beginning of the 1590s, Eulalia Page and George Strangewidge had been hung for the murder of Mistress Page's husband. The play may have been inspired by several popular ballads retelling the story that was circulating at the time. Through to the end of the year, there are further entries in the diary where payments are made to various collaborating authors working with Decker. In all, in 1599, Decker had a hand in 11 plays recorded by Henslow. We don't know how the income received from Henslow for those plays was shared between the dramatists concerned in each case, but we might estimate Decker's income at £25 to £30 for his year of work. That's comparable with the salary of a schoolteacher for the time, although of course Decker couldn't guarantee that level of income year on year. It was shortly after this period that Decker became involved in a spat between several playwrights that ran on for three years from 1599. The spark for this was a ban on satirical content in prose and verse. This has become known as the Bishop's Ban of 1599, and it was both specific and wide-ranging. Instigated by John Whitgift, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Richard Bancroft, the Bishop of London, it ordered a ban on a range of literary works that were to be collected and taken to the Stationers Hall for burning. It ordered all satires and epigrams to be culled, and play scripts and histories not authorised by the Privy Council to be similarly destroyed. The order specifically says that all the works by Thomas Nash and Gabriel Harvey should be censored. You'll remember that Harvey, another prose satirist, had crossed swords with Nash in print over insults to Robert Greene, which escalated into a long-term animosity between them. The order also singled out nine works in print, including two plays by playwright and poet John Marston, a poetic work called Six Snarling Satires by Thomas Middleton, and Epigrams and Elegies by Christopher Marlowe and John Davis. Just three days after the ban was issued, all these books were burned as decreed. After that, it was clear that there were few options for the satiric writer in prose or poetry, so they turned to plays as a vehicle for their sharp tongues. The spat opened when John Marston took his less-than-friendly rivalry with Ben Jonson into the public domain by satirising Jonson as prideful in his play Histriomastic. This was an allegorical play showing how mankind was led to destruction by pride and greed, and was probably acted by a large company of amateurs at the inns of court. As well as Johnson, it also satirises professional actors, so it seems unlikely that it was performed in the London playhouses. Johnson responded by satirising Marston's wordy and legalistic style in Every Man Out of His Humour, produced by the Lord Chamberlain's men the same year. Marston, not to be outdone, then depicted Johnson as a cuckold in Jack Drum's Entertainment, which was performed by one of the troops of child actors. Johnson countered with Cynthia's Revels, acted by the Children of the Chapel in 1600, where Marston is satirised as a light voluptuous reveller and Decker as a strange arrogant puff. It's not clear why Johnson picked on Decker at this point, especially as they had worked together the year before on the Page of Plymouth, and even more recently on Robert, second King of the Scots. Something in that experience set Johnson off. He clearly had a low opinion of Decker, sneering at him as a dresser of plays about town. 
1601, Marsden took another shot at Johnson in the comedy What You Will, to which Johnson responded by portraying Marsden as a character who vomits bombastic and ridiculous phrases that he has ingested in Poetaster. In this play, where the main character is Ovid, Johnson portrays himself as Horace and Decker, in much less generous light, as the character Demetrius Fannius. Scholars speculate that every character in the play is a satire on one of Johnson's contemporaries, but we lack the detail of his exact relationship with them to identify each one conclusively. Decker then mocked Johnson in the form of Horace in his 1601 play Statitomastix, mocking him as an arrogant and overbearing hypocrite. The criticism of Johnson is cruel. Decker suggests that Johnson, in the character of Horace, desires to be a moral compass for his time, but is fearful of being held responsible for his judgments. He writes only to exploit social advantage, and his bad writing is not only bad in itself, but bad because the author's character is corrupt. Ouch. Statitomastics, subtitled The Untrussing of the Humorous Poet, like Poetesta, is thought to include satires of contemporary playwrights and actors, although these are equally obscure to us. The play was performed by the boy players of The Children of Paul's and by The Lord Chamberlain's Men, and made it into print so it must have been popular with the audience at the time, even if they too didn't get all of the references. It seems likely that Decker already had the play in progress before he layered satire onto it, and he managed to craft a play where there is no relationship between the tragic main plot and the comic subplot. And there the spat ended. Decker's animosity with Johnson didn't fade, but Marston and Johnson seem to have come to an understanding later and collaborated with George Chapman on Eastwood Ho in 1605. That play has an anti-Scottish satiric tone to it, which was unwise of the playwrights with James I on the throne, who was, of course, also James VI of Scotland. Johnson and Chapman ended up in jail. Marsden, though he was thought to be the author of the anti-Scottish elements of the play, somehow escaped punishment. But that's a story for Johnson's life, not Decker's, and another time. Decker's The Whore of Babylon was staged at the Fortune Playhouse by Prince Henry's men in 1606 for just one performance. We know this because Decker himself wrote about why he thought the play was a failure. When the play was published in Quarto the following year, Decker wrote a preface trying to excuse the failings. Perhaps we need to take this with a note of caution because Decker doesn't see the play but the production as a failure. He blames the players for the deformity of it, which was, according to him, due to the bad handling by the players. He says, Let the poet set the note of his numbers, even to Apollo's own lyre, the players will have their own crotchets and sing false notes in dispute with all the rules of music. Adding that the players were also ill nurses for the handling of children and bad tailors ruining good cloth. The play, by providing an account of the many Catholic plots against her, was a glorification of Elizabeth and her triumph, as Decker saw it, over Rome. The defeat of the Spanish Armada is seen as the pinnacle of those triumphs. 
He chose to present his account through allegorical characters, such as truth and time and plain dealing. But the allegorical form was out of fashion by the early 1600s and might have seemed quite old-fashioned, even anachronistic, to an audience who had then expected action and violence or good comedy when they came to the playhouse. This may have been part of the problem with the play, and the extensive use of the dumb show to pre-explain the point of the scenes, there are five of them in all, seems very heavy-handed and certainly slows up the action. In another respect, it was, perhaps, too sophisticated for the majority of the audience. For his poetic model, Decker used Spencer's Fairy Queen, a complex romantic allegory full of puzzles for the reader to work through. But such complexities on stage are a different matter. The well-informed may have recognised the characters as satires of current political figures, such as the Earl of Leicester and maybe William Cecil, although even today's scholars can't agree on that one. But much will have been lost to the majority of the audience as the play moved on without time to consider the meaning behind the characterisations and the events of the plot. Once again, it seems that Decker was trying to cram too much into one play, and on this occasion, his expectations of his audience and his players were too high. The play demands a large cast of characters, which must have involved a lot of doubling up on parts and some very quick costume changes. Decker's prologue to the quarto edition does suggest that he had reservations about the play, albeit in hindsight, and notwithstanding his criticism of the players. He claims that Elizabeth's reign was so magnificent that the art of no pen is able to reach it. But then he insists that the play will be clear to the least intelligent spectator. We present matter above the vulgar argument, yet draw so lively that the weakest eye through these thin veils we hang between your sight, and this our piece may reach the mystery. He doth protest too much, methinks. Decker's later career was one of collaboration with younger playwrights of the day. There was Caesar's Fall with Thomas Middleton in 1602, and the paired Northwood Ho and Westwood Ho with John Webster in 1604 and 1605. The Roaring Girl, again with Middleton, was written in 1610 and dived into the world of London's lowlife, in this case featuring the character of Moll Cutpurse, a woman dressed as a man who makes handy use of the sword, but is at her core, like many of Decker's protagonists, a soft-hearted romantic. It is thought that the term Moll for a gangster's partner in crime originated here. A century later, Defoe picked it up for his great heroine Moll Flanders and from there the term was truly culturally embedded. When Decker collaborated with John Ford and William Rowley on The Witches of Edmonton in 1621, he created quite a sympathetic character in the witch of the title, Mother Sawyer. The printed edition produced in 1658 includes Anne Coe when listing the authors, and it is widely assumed that John Webster may also have had a hand in it as he was in other known collaborations with Ford and Rowley at the time. The events of the story, the identification and capture and hanging of a witch, were based on real events that had happened earlier in that year. The reign of James I was a notorious period of witch hunting in England, the king himself having written works on his absolute belief in the existence and effective practices of witches. So, it was another play written to respond to the zeitgeist 
but the peace is not a straightforward agreement with the king's position. If anything, the message of the play is that the unfortunate Mother Sawyer is a product of Jacobean society, not something in opposition to it. But the play was presented at court that December, so perhaps the king was more lenient in his views than is often portrayed. Later in life, he did publicly temper his views on the existence of witches, so this is possible, and the players don't appear to have any qualms about presenting such a portrait to him. However, the play, like many of its time, may simply have been taken as the retelling of a scandalous story from the recent past, often with little regard for the facts of the case. Decker co-wrote several more of these in his later years, in a tragicomic vein, a style that has become very popular. In 1612, Decker was commissioned with actor John Hemmings to create the Lord Mayor's show for that year. It must have been quite a spectacle. They received £181 for their efforts. Dramatists were often involved in the city pageants, held both on royal occasions and for the appointment of city dignitaries. To give you an idea of the scale of these celebrations, modern analysis of the pageant created on this occasion puts the total cost at close to £1,000. Those expenses covered charges for the mayor's galley and the three other galleys that accompanied it to convey him up the Thames to Westminster for the swearing-in ceremony and then back again to the city. The fees for gunfire, payments for 32 trumpeters, seven drums, three ensigns and four fifes, for 16 fencers with hand swords and six green men and the fireworks that they would scatter to disperse the crowds to clear the way for the procession to the city to provide music, to an unspecified number of porters who carried the parts of the show, to guards for watching over the pageants during the night before they were brought onto the streets, and for miscellaneous items of food and drink. Shortly after the pageant, Decker was arrested for non-payment of debts and would languish in the King's Bench prison for the next seven years. One of the people he owed money to was the father of the playwright John Webster, who was a coachmaker, so perhaps it was a debt related to a pageant wagon and Decker's management of the costs associated with the pageant that led to his longest spell in prison. He features less frequently in the record after his release from prison, but still worked as a playwright and divisor of pageants. In a dedication to his late play Match Me in London, In 1631, he wrote, I have been a priest of Apollo's temple many years. My voice is decaying with my age. Decker vanishes from the record in 1632, so it's assumed that he died at around that time. But he seems to have died in the same sort of poverty that plagued him throughout his life. The very last mention of him is when his widow renounced the administration of his estate, suggesting he left nothing, or less than nothing, of monetary value. Thomas Decker loved London for all the trouble he endured there, be it plague, poverty or prison. In a pamphlet, he praises the city, O London, thou mother of my life, nurse of my being. And although that love of the city seeps into his plays and his characters that populate them, perhaps what we learn most from Decker's life and works is the amount of collaboration that went on amongst the Elizabethan and Jacobean playwrights. Decker rarely wrote alone and frequently worked on plays with multiple authors and those plays were often based on previous plays, stories or published ballads. 
Modern scholarship has come around to accepting the idea that written works, and particularly plays, from this period can rarely be ascribed to one writer. And clearly, the strong sense of ownership over a work that a writer would have today is a much more modern idea than we might think. You will have noticed in this episode and the preceding one that I've spoken almost as much about other writers as Thomas Decker himself. But that is inevitable, as Decker was a master collaborator and no less an artist and craftsman for all of that. And perhaps he is the best illustration that we have of how an Elizabethan playwright worked. Next time, I'm going to look at the interpreters of these and other plays. The players. The actors. The big stars of the day were very big, on stage and in their lives too. So next time, we'll be talking Kemp, Allen and, of course, the biggest star of his day, Burbage. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group or find the podcast on Instagram or X to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related stuff. You can find details of ways to support the podcast at the website, which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. If you do feel able to help with the cost of running the podcast, then please head over to Patreon, where you will find additional content for a small monthly fee or a one-off donation. And you can also make one-off donations through ko-fi.com. You can find all the details about that on the website or in the links in the show notes. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via x at thoetp. Mm-hmm.